The following episode of the 9pm edict contains calculations, strong language, and adult themes. Tuesday, the 18th of August, 2020. In this episode, we look at what might happen in the America in November. Trump wins, Trump loses, or it's unclear. We hear whatever the fuck this is. We are building the new earth. We are shifting everything for everybody. And when you come home to your power and your love and your sovereignty, you are doing the best thing possible. And we learn some bureaucratic language that you can use in your own life. So the exact words that we used were, the department and agency also apologises for any hurt or harm and are focused on applying the lessons learnt in the future. This is the 9pm legally insufficient beaver comparison. No, no, not like that. We are all going to die because people don't know what a metre and a half looks like, or rather, they don't give a fuck about it, they don't give a fuck about you, they don't give a fuck about me, and we are all going to die. And this is despite the huge global effort to teach people how distance works. And when I say a huge global effort, I really mean it. I've been tracking this for months, and now, for the very first time, I'm going to give you a full presentation of my findings. Now, one difficulty here is that different countries have chosen different distances for their COVID-19 physical distancing rules. It's two metres in many countries that use the metric system, i.e. the entire fucking world except Myanmar and Liberia and the America. It's 1.5 metres in some other countries, including Australia. And for those three reprobates, it's six feet, like, like insects, I guess, or like 0.75 spiders, because they have eight feet, right? Uh, unless you're in Australia, where the spiders are, of course, much, much bigger, obviously. But what are these distances? How do they work? Here's one attempt from the America to explain things. I'm sure by now we're all pretty aware of social, social, social distancing. The recommended distance is six feet apart. Six feet. That's about the same length as six record cover albums. Or two big dogs. But how far is six feet really? Are we following best practices when we're out and about? Here's some things you can use to gauge if you really are or aren't six feet away from the next person. A mattress. A twin-size mattress is 72 inches in length. Imagine a mattress between you and the next person and you're good to go. Use that same exact principle when waiting at a bus stop. Stair steps are different everywhere, so be at least eight steps away to be safe. A shopping cart from end to end? That's only about three and a third of a foot long. Keep it at two when you're shopping for food. ATMs are usually less than six feet apart. Better use the next one over. Many urinals are even closer, so you should be at least two urinals away from the next guy. This two-door Fiat seems like a small car, but actually it's 11 feet and four inches from end to end. Keep that distance and you're more than safe. 
want to have fun with it? Imagine your favorite celebrities lying down. Jimmy Fallon. Safe. Post Malone. Safe. Adam Levine. Safe. Christian Bale. Safe. Kevin Hart? Not quite. And if you really want to be exact, download a distance measuring app. Follow these tips for a safe and hopefully virus-free future. Not only for you, but for your loved ones and community as well. Yeah, sure. But who the hell carries a mattress with them, right? So with that in mind, let's begin in Canada, where the recommended distance is two metres. According to Canadians, that's as long as a moose. And according to Margaret Atwood, yes, that Margaret Atwood, if you don't know how big a moose is, it's time to find out. NB, she says, these people in the uh, the little sticker poster thing are standing too close to the moose. Pay attention to what Ms Atwood has to say. Meanwhile, in Northern Ireland, the slogan is think distance, think cow, uh, at least according to a sign in Ballymena. Uh, so thank you, Northern Ireland. Two metres equals one cow equals one moose, and that's not... The same as a mattress. A mattress is only about 1.83 cows long, right? Six feet. A cow will not fit on your mattress. Trust me on this. Trust me. And for those of you thinking, wait, 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 a moose equals a cow? Really? Oh, surely a moose is bigger than a cow? Well, yes, a moose is taller than a cow but it's only the same length. It's probably wider than a cow too, but we're only talking about length. A moose equals a cow. Uh, now in Guatemala, uh, they've gone for another local animal, the Central American tapir, Tapirius biardii. Uh, they say that's also two metres. So a tapir equals a cow equals a moose. Now, if you look at, uh, the podcast website, which is in the process of moving to the9pmedict.com. You can actually do that now, the9pmedict.com. It just goes to the old pages, but over the coming uh, weeks, uh, I'll, you know, zhuzh that up a bit. Um, if you look at this Guatemalan poster, it, it kind of shows two chaps standing uh, with a uh, tapey between them. And the tapirs, like mouth and ass, are kind of like at groin level. And and just personally, I think that this whole tapir on a spit scenario is a bit sus. I mean, not just from the COVID-19 implications, you must understand. Still, if that's what's considered okay in Guatemala, then a tapir equals a cow equals a moose. But do not try to get a mate together and, and spit roast the moose. At least not in this sense. Uh, still in metric land, there's two Canadian beavers to two metres, according to the uh, furbearerconservation.com. That sounds like a that, that's some sort of covert furry thing, obviously. But there we have it. One beaver is 0.5 cows or half a moose or 0.5 tapirs. One tapir equals two beavers. But remember, your mattress is only about 0.91 beavers long. That's not right, is it? That should be doubled that. 
uh, 1.82 metres long. That's how big your mattress is. You are not going to fit two beavers on your single bed mattress. You can trust me on that one as well. Now, according to Castor Canadensis, or Jose the BX Beaver on Twitter, who lives in the Bronx River, apparently, uh, his advice, Jose the Beaver's advice, is six feet apart, right? That's apparently the length of two park benches, which I think is bullshit, 1.5 bicycles, or three American beavers. So, Here's the thing. Apparently, three American beavers is six feet, but you only need two Canadian beavers for two metres. That means each American beaver is only 0.61 Canadian beavers, and a Canadian beaver is an astounding 1.64 American beavers. So to get a whole tape ear, you'll need 3.3 American beavers. That's quite a small beaver when you think about it. Now, you can definitely fit more than two American beavers on your single mattress. I still don't recommend it. Now, in Toronto, they reckon you should stay three geese apart. And I'll assume for the moment that's Canadian geese because it's Toronto. So this is all fairly easy. Three geese to the moose, 0.96 Canadian geese to the American beaver. Uh, You can obviously easily goose a whole beaver unless it's Canadian. Now, in Gary, which from memory is in uh, in Indiana, I don't mean a guy called Gary, I mean the town called Gary, uh, it's one adult Dianonchithus, which is a dinosaur, Dianonychus. Oh, Dianonychus, I know them, dinosaur. Anyway, one of them to a refrigerator, as long as the refrigerator is on its side, which, as we've already seen, is 0.96 tapirs. Uh, Gary authorities uh, also mention a single bed, but we've already covered that. In Cleveland, Ohio, the figure is 12 Slovenian smoked sausages. And uh, thank you to the work of Riddell's Butchers at 478 East 152nd Street in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. They've marked off sections of the floor and they figured out uh, 12 Slovenian smoked sausages apart are those sections. And as uh, WOIO in Cleveland notes, meat math is the best kind of math, or as we say, maths. I agree, I, and I agree with that sentiment. So, okay, that's four Slovenian sausages per American beaver. Now, <laughs> now, according to the government of New Jersey, and this is an official statement, you have to stay 1.05 John Bon Jovi's apart, as long as John Bon Jovi like he's laying down on his side. So each John Bon Jovi is 2.989 American beavers or just 0.95 tapirs. And as an aside, Gwinterglotes notes on Twitter, the standard Bon John, Bon, uh, there, the standard, <laughs> this is hard to do, the standard Bon John Bon Jovi, I didn't write John down. The standard Bon Jovi is kept in a vault in Paris. All other Bon Jovis are merely copies. True fact. And as Stephen Dan notes, the Bon Jovi is the metric for the success of the COVID-19 curve flattening. We're either halfway there to flattening that curve or we're living on a prayer. Thank you. On the Yorkshire Dales, 
Uh, the recommended distance is one Land Rover width or two Swaledale ewes long. Uh, it's a type of sheep, obviously. Uh, or nine red squirrels. So one John Bon Jovi is therefore just over 8.55 squirrels. Uh, the Yorkshire Dales obviously is using the standard two-metre rule. Uh, and as you know, that's a smidge over 13 Slovenian sausages. Uh, here in Australia, uh, ACT Health says you should stay five echidnas apart or three brush-tailed possums or four platypus or perfectly obvious, except that in Australia, the recommended distance is only 1.5 metres, not two metres, or 6.75 red squirrels or one and a half Canadian beavers using the standard conversion rate of 0.375 beavers to the platypus. Uh, of course, for any Americans listening, that's 0.563 beavers to the platypus uh, to three significant figures. If you're converting beavers to echidnas, the figures are 0.3 and 0.45, respectively. That's uh, 2.457 Slovenian sausages to the platypus, although platypus generally don't eat sausages, not even smoked Slovenian sausages. Um, and we can come back to the brush-tailed possums later, but the same principles apply. Uh, the government of New Jersey has also told us to keep at least 1.28 snookies of space between ourselves and and others. Uh, if you know what a snooky is, uh, I'm sorry, but here we are. It's 2020. Uh, that's obviously 1.22 John Bon Jovi's. Uh, remember, though, to have both your snooky and your John Bon Jovi arranged sideways, horizontally, that is, not vertically. Uh, and that's assuming 0.78 tape is to the snooky. Uh, now, if all this is getting too complicated for you. Remember that there's one very simple rule of thumb for Australians. Kylie Minogue is almost exactly 0.86 John Bon Jovi's tall, or about 1.06 snookies. And as it happens, that's bang on one and a half metres. Uh, and solving for John Bon Jovi, Kylie is therefore the same as 2.57 American beavers. Uh, there will, of course, be a question on this in your final exam. And finally, uh, a handy guide for astrophysicists, if all these animals scare you. Um, the distance you're after is at least the diameter of a Saturn mass black hole's event horizon, uh, assuming zero angular momentum and zero charge. If you want to take those into account, uh, which is quite likely, given the way black holes work, uh, well, I'll leave that as an exercise uh, for the reader. And if you find all of this too tricky to calculate, just remember to stay around six light nanoseconds apart and you'll be fine. Uh, so I'm glad that's all finally clear, right? <laughs> Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. the people's voice, cast you and your agenda out. We say no to mandatory vaccinations against our will. We burn away your evil agenda. We, the awakened people, say no to mandatory vaccinations. We cast you out. We cast out your evil agenda of cruelty, deception and control. No. We will not be vaccinated against our will. You 
are to leave government. You are to walk away from your power and your position. For we cast you out. No to mandatory vaccinations. No. This is against our will. This is against our right to freedom, to choice. The universal law is greater than any law of any land. Hail and farewell, Daniel Andrews, and blessed be. I call forth the rain to bless and cleanse this rite. I call forth the heavens to open and bear down upon us on this day and on this night. Cleanse this government and all its ill will. Banish from state, territory, capital and the hill. Guardians of day and guardians of night. Great Mother Earth, in this cauldron of bounty, punish them, make them accountable by law, by honour. Make them hear and make them see and free our people both by land and by sea. Lift the restrictions. No to mandatory masking. No to mandatory vaccinations. Reopen our economy. For as we will it, so mote it be. Be. That's uh, someone performing witchcraft in Melbourne uh, against Premier Dan Andrews to end the lockdown uh, from a few weeks ago, thanks to uh, Cam Smith, a.k.a. Sexenheimer, on the Twitters for digging that out for us. Um, yeah, for me, it's uh, day 152 of the quarantines. That's 22 weeks. I'm at one of those points where, as I've probably indicated, the fear is starting to return uh, to keep my sanity, I have been occasionally uh, taking a couple of days away from uh, uh, the compound in the Blue Mountains, going down to Sydney and, and kind of walking in the sunshine and uh, having a meal with a friend and that sort of thing. But, you know, the numbers are going up and, yeah, what do we do? Um, and I'm starting to get concerned about some of the, uh, the dialogue uh, as we say around these issues. This is, uh, well, this is from the other day. An urgent review has been ordered into the policing of hotel quarantine security in Queensland. It follows worrying revelations. A man escaped from a Toowoomba hotel on Monday afternoon with nobody noticing until the following morning. He handed himself into police on Wednesday and has tested negative, but was in the public for two days undetected. I don't know what the system was in this particular hotel and obviously there must have been some failing because if we had a very robust system which with good framework and governance this would not have occurred. The scare has officials on edge as they desperately attempt to avoid a similar situation to Victoria. Boom, boom, boom. He escaped. He escaped and was in the public. My God. Uh, the reference to Victoria, by the way, uh, relates to, well, very recent news that around 90% of all the COVID-19 cases in Victoria 
are likely to be able to be traced back eventually to one family who quarantined at Melbourne's Ridges Hotel in Swanston Street. Uh, at least that's what uh, the government inquiry has been told. But the important thing for me here is that they say precisely how the virus has escaped from hotel quarantine remains a mystery. Uh, there have been some suggestions that it you know, was a security guard or whatever. But really, why do we need to know that it was a particular family? Because you know, sure as eggs is eggs, and eggs are eggs, that some cunt of a tabloid newspaper journalist will find out who they are, put their photographs in the paper, and hurrah, we've got someone to blame. And there's a lot of who will we blame going around at the moment. I mean, personally, I think blame the virus, right? Blame biology, blame the fact that Earth has an atmosphere or something. It does, you know. As uh, politics on the Twitters noted, there's also all this kerfuffle about northern New South Wales residents not being able to go across the border into Queensland for important health care. Now, some hats have said, well, why can't they get health care in New South Wales without realising that they live just within a couple of kilometres of the Queensland border, whereas the nearest New South Wales towns of note are, are, are yonks away and... And that's where their healthcare providers are. That's where they've always gone. Why would you suddenly go somewhere else? Well, as politics pointed out, the chief medical officer of Queensland, Dr. Jeanette, Jeanette Young, she says she hasn't refused a single border exemption for healthcare access. Not one. So what's all this about? It's, it's like everyone is determined to find things to complain about like me, really. Uh, Dave Milner at The Shot has written a column. I recommend you read it. The headline is Murdoch columnists are coronavirus super spreaders and should be closed under Melbourne's stage four restrictions. Uh, obviously, these are the columnists who are, you know, the people I mean. Uh, here's one paragraph from Dave Milner's piece. They're Pete Evans in better suits. David Ikey with the stuff about reptilian overlords scrubbed by an overworked, ever more desperate copy editor. They have more in common with Alex Jones and the Facebook group spreading 5G Bill Gates memes than they do with real journalists. They're just better at saying the loud part quietly, veiling the lunacy with neater hair. And yeah, we've got reasons to be worried, right? Uh, there was some research out the other day, uh, at a, a number of American universities did this, they compared the estimated excess deaths in New York City during the initial COVID-19 outbreak and the 1918 influenza pandemics. Now, just a reminder, excess deaths, well, the, I mean, they're all excess, obviously, but what it means is in a typical year, in those months, this is how many people usually die, but on the months we're now looking at, a lot more people have died. So that's that's a thing we can look at, and COVID-19 is the difference. And surprise, surprise, um, yeah, what happened in New York is as bad as what happened in New York in 1918-1919. Uh, but of course, America is handling all this in an intelligent manner. Skepticism of vaccines in the U.S. could be a problem in the fight against the coronavirus pandemic. Political science researchers Matt Moda 
and Kristen Lunds Trujillo conducted a survey of almost 500 adults in the U.S. in April on their views on vaccines for COVID-19. 23% of the respondents said they would not be willing to get vaccinated if a COVID-19 vaccine becomes available. 62% of the people who were already skeptical about vaccines were not willing to change their mind. These preliminary findings suggest that anti-vaccine beliefs could jeopardize the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccine and collective immunity. Experts estimate that 50 to 70% of Americans would need to develop immunity to COVID-19 naturally or through a vaccine. For comparison, just 37% of Americans chose to get the flu vaccine in 2017 to 2018. God bless America, right? We are going to win four more years. And then after that, we'll go for another four years because, you know what, they spied on my campaign. We should get a redo of four years. Yeah, four more years, eight more years, or as I've been saying, yeah, 12 more years. Let's just keep going. Trump land here forever. And of course, Donald Trump has been uh, telling us that we have to know the election results on the night of the election. I don't know why, but he says not days, months, or even years later. I don't know why it'd be years later, but here you go. Uh, as we all know, he is setting things up so that he can say there's something wrong with the election result. So what then happens, right? What if Trump decides to just say, no, the election's a fraud? Because he will, right? You know he will. Uh, John Birmingham, who is you perhaps uh, remember as a friend of mine, he's of course a writer of uh, suitably trashy techno thrillers and end of the world stuff and uh, columns that involved a lot of swearing. And he did, ah, uh, yes, he died with a falafel in his hand. His first big breakthrough hit. Bloody, 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 bloody. You've heard it. You've heard him say that on this very podcast. Anyway, the other day, well, twenty seventh of July to be exact. Uh, he put together a column which, which, in which he said, if you're in the mood, the very dark mood for some end-of-the-world anxiety, and who isn't, am I right? These three pieces should have you in a fine lather by the time you're done. And I'm going to go through them quickly. Do go and read uh, the whole thing. Uh, go to the 9 com to find the episode. Uh, I haven't quite sorted out individual episode, Leo, whatever, just... Just here, you'll find it. Uh, anyway, the first thing uh, was in a story from the Boston Globe where a group calling themselves the Transition Integrity Project, it's uh, a bipartisan group of people who are uh, state lawmakers, uh, you know, all sorts of things. They ran a, a kind of role-playing game to work out what would happen uh, between election day and inauguration day if Trump decided to object, using everything he could to uh, slow things down, including the military and federal agents, uh, and so on. And to sum it up, uh, 
All of our scenarios ended in both street-level violence and political impasse, uh, said Rosa Brooks. She's a law professor at uh, Georgetown uh, University and used to be a a Defence Department official. Uh, She said... The law is essentially, it's almost helpless against a president who's willing to ignore it. So there you go. Uh, Number two, a story from ABC Australia. Back in the 1990s, uh, when Bill Clinton was in the White House uh, and the United States was kind of riding high at that period, uh, they got a guy called Jack Goldstone, Professor Jack Goldstone, to study how states fail. Uh, and and they meant at the time like other states, not America. Well, he, uh, Professor Goldstone, who's a sociologist, and Peter Turchin, who does mathematical modelling of historical societies, uh, they've concluded that the US is, quote, headed for another civil war. There you go. The conditions for civil violence, they say, are the worst since the 19th century, and in particular, the years leading up to the start of the American Civil War in, ding, ding, trivia question, 1861. Uh, It's about the inequalities uh, that started in the 80s, the selfish elites, the polarisation, the inability of the government to mount an effective response to the pandemic disease, blah 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 Is the US headed for another civil war, they say, in a word, yes. So are you feeling good yet? (laughs) Well, let's get to the third thing, uh, which is... Uh, a presentation given by Dr. David Kilcullen at the United States Study Centre a few weeks back. Uh, now, David Kilcullen, uh, he was an Australian Army officer, an intelligence officer. Uh, he specialised in analysing counterinsurgency uh, and such things. Uh, he served alongside American General Petraeus in uh, Iraq. Uh, He studied Afghanistan. Uh, He was hired by then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice to be her advisor on insurgency and counterinsurgency, which put a lot of American uh, noses out of joint. Did I mention David Cullen's Australian? Look him up. He does a lot of things. Anyway, uh, he and and this I'm going to play a few chunks from his presentation but do go watch the whole thing because you'll see the charts and diagrams and maps and stuff. Anyway, he started by saying that actually in America the 1970s really were quite violent. In the year 1974 alone there were 2,000 domestic bombings in the United States. An incredibly high level of military style violence, politically motivated in the immediate aftermath of the Vietnam War. There is actually far less violence happening now, but we have a social media network and a conventional media model that really emphasizes and amplifies that level of violence so that it has a significant political impact out of proportion to the reality. He reckons that now the US is going through what he called a multi-phase emergency. We've got the disease, COVID-19, we've got the short-term shutdown and we've got the long-term effects of that shutdown and then what may evolve after that. Now, he showed us some charts and he showed us a map of where all of the right-wing and left-wing extremists hang out and some of them are violent and some of them have weapons and some of them are pretty damn serious about it. And, And as I say... 
there are these extremists on both the left and the right. And Kilcullen has started to see the emergence of group-on-group violence between uh, those uh, extremists on each end of the spectrum. We've seen different groups at the street thug level squaring off against each other for about five years now, and this conflict has really escalated that level of intensity. So Antifa on the left um, squaring off with groups like the Patriot Prayer, um, Proud Boys, American Identity Movement, that are call themselves community self-defense militias. They organize and follow basically the same um, approach as the right-wing groups, but with a different ideology. And then at one level above that, you have smaller underground groups that follow a cell-based structure. So that's where the neo-Nazis and some of the neo-Confederate and far-right groups sit on the right-hand side. On the left, it actually starts to become um, a sort of subset of Antifa and then some environmental groups like Earth Liberation Front, um, ALF, the Animal Liberation Front, and a couple of far-left neo-Marxist terrorist groups. So as you go up the pyramid, the groups are smaller, they're more covert, and they tend to be more dangerous or have more dangerous intent. So apparently, when things get more violent on the ground, as we started to see in some parts of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests and and especially the counter-protests, when things get more violent there, the groups further up the chain into that hierarchy of concern, if you like, they get involved. And we did see gun club members defending BLM protesters, even though you would think that those NRA types would be against them, but in fact, they're for free speech. And for that reason, Kilcullen says that the media quite often misinterprets a lot of these right-wing groups. There are racist groups on the right, and racist groups did feed into the um, militia movement of the 1990s. Uh, And in fact, part of the rise of the militia who claimed to be non-racial and sort of um, constitutionalist rather than right-wing was a deliberate attempt to go underground by some of the racist groups that were being targeted after the Oklahoma City bombing. Kathleen Bellew um, did a great book on this called Bring the War Home. Uh, where she traces that history. Um, I disagree with a couple of the things, but overwhelmingly it's an it's a accurate account based on the data I've seen. Um, so but there is a racist core that sits behind the militia group, but the vast majority of people that you see interacting with each other in these militia groups are not, in fact, um, consciously um, pursuing a racial agenda. They're more of a sort of uh, libertarian and constitutionalist model they believe the federal government's out of control but they don't express that usually in race terms um there are many more groups on the right about 380 as i said compared to only 50 on the left um but you know again that's the start state for any conflict and as we know from history once a conflict starts Mm. groups will grow on both sides because the violence becomes uh self-sustaining on the left um the, the the militia style groups grew out of Antifa and um, trade unionists, actually, uh, in the about the middle of the of the 2000s. So the first groups began to appear about 2006, 2007. Um, the first so-called redneck revolt group um, emerged around the 2008 um, 
financial crisis. And that actually was a big driver for a lot of radicalization of groups which began to organize initially on the East Coast and then um, pretty heavily in the Pacific Northwest and California. And they became sort of little fully armed, uh, well-organized groups that uh, tried to be a left-wing counterpart of the right militias and to play a protective role over groups in the street. The Ferguson um, protests in 2014 provided a big impetus to the, to the Redneck Revolt and John Brown gun clubs, particularly because there was a couple of incidents where Oath Keepers turned up to protect the black protesters against the police, right? <laughs> Indicating what I was saying about not being particularly racist, right? They yeah. were there to, they, they saw themselves as kind of arbiters of um, preventing any violence. Um, that really offended people on the left and they, they stood up these groups to a higher degree. And then, of course, the rise of Trump and the election of President Trump saw a huge spike in their activity starting in 2018. So it's now two years after 2018. It's not long until the election in November, is it? August, September, October, no, three months, less than three months. What does Kilcullen think is going to happen? So on the left, there is a fairly widespread fear that President Trump will lose the election but then refuse to step down. Mm-hmm. And that he may actually call in the military to... Um, stop himself from uh, having to leave. I actually think that's reasonably unlikely, Um, uh, but it's a very widespread fantasy on on the left. On the right, there is a fantasy that the left is going to rig the election, uh, that it's going to result in a a clean sweep, you know, um, House, Senate, President, many governorships, and that the left will then come after, uh, in a physical, you know, genocidal sense, um, people on the right. Um, and that's equally, I think, overblown. overblown. Um, but if you think about it, right, the, the election has three possible outcomes. Trump wins, Trump loses, or it's unclear, like, you know, 2001 or 2000. 2000, if, 2001, yeah, got it. Yeah. If Trump wins, if Trump wins, I think he steps down, but I think there'll be significant violence of a low-grade, you know, baseball bats and bricks, the sort of things we've seen the last few weeks. Um uh, of, of the campaign, of the campaign, but also in transition, right? Interregnum, yeah. Okay. Sorry, what I say, if, if Trump loses, I think he steps down, but there will be some some violence during the campaign. Um, secondly, um, you know, the right wing will not immediately respond. I don't think, but when they do, it'll be much more lethal than brick, bricks in the street, right? It'll be it'll be AR-15s um, in some groups, in some areas, I should say. If um, uh, if Trump wins, I don't think you're going to get triumphalist violence from the right. You'll get responsive, reactive violence from the left, but it'll be fairly low grade. If Trump loses, you'll get pretty triumphalist political behaviour on the on the left, and then after a delay, you'll get some kind of backlash on the right. Um, so I, you know, and if it's unclear, then I think it's just a very messy transition, and potentially that's where the the most dangerous environment is. So that's cheery stuff, right? Since this is uh, my podcast, you get to hear my views on this. Remember that that conversation we've been listening to just now uh, is from a few weeks ago. And Trump is really, really hammering things like the US Postal Service, 
uh, selective advertising about whether to vote by mail or not in various places. He's really going hard. And what will happen if Trump does win? I mean, yeah, I, I know the polling says what the polling says, but in America, people have to go out and vote and they don't have to, right? It's optional. And so much of American politics is about motivating your base, ooh, matron, and getting them to go out and vote rather than convincing anyone to change their minds. That's why, uh, as I've said, the Lincoln Project's ads really are speaking to the converted, but they need to be spoken to, so they vote against Trump. If we get this idea that, nah, nah, Trump can't possibly win, look at the polls, then he'll win. That's my four more years thing, and he is, I think he's going to push it. I think he's really going to push the eight more years, 12 more years, not necessarily by, you know, daring the Pentagon to send the troops in to winkle him out of the White House, but by just putting up one of his idiot family members as as another candidate and taking advantage of whatever assistance in this he gets from other parties, I'm sure I don't know who I'm talking about. Anyway, to summarise, this is what David Kilcullen thinks. I think there's a 100% chance that we're going to see some acts of violence in November, right? Um, I think that, you know, you have to ask the question, at what level does violence or disruption um, start to threaten the fabric of US society and the US state and then, by extension, uh, the US role in the world? Uh-huh. Well, as usual, um, you can think your own thoughts, right? I'm not going to do your thinking for you. So uh, just take a moment to absorb that. And obviously now, uh, after that, I think we need a, a change of pace. <coughs> Elephant stamp time! <coughs> Elephant stamp time. Each episode of this podcast, more or less, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. And today I have one, two, two. Oh, okay. I thought I had three. Anyway, two. First up, uh, an elephant stamp to the Mississippi Flag Commission. Yes, that's a thing. Because currently, Mississippi doesn't have a flag. In the past, they've had two. So the first one was called the Magnolia Flag. It was adopted in 1861, which you'll remember from uh, my previous statement was uh, the beginning of the American Civil War. Anyway, it consisted of a flag of white ground, a magnolia tree in the centre, a blue field in the upper left-hand corner with a white star in the centre, with a red border and a red fringe at the extremity of the fra uh, flag. So obviously admiralty law applied. <laughs> okay, so the magnolia flag was inadvertently declared to be null and void by a state constitutional convention in 1865, which is the end of the Civil War from memory, and then the state was left without an official flag. 
until 1894. And the one they adopted then consisted of three equal horizontal tribands of blue, white and red. And in the Canton, the Canton's the bit that say on the Australian flag has uh, the Union flag of Britain on it. Um, it's considered, if you put something in the Canton like that, it's considered to indicate that you are uh, subordinate to whatever's there. Well, what was in the Canton of the Mississippi state flag? The Confederate battle flag. Uh, yes, yeah, so... Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, Mississippi decided, yeah, maybe not. So there is such a thing as the Mississippi Flag Commission, and uh, this is happening. A viral design being proposed as the new state flag for Mississippi originated as a joke and was only included in a list of finalists due to a typo, according to officials. The Mississippi Department of Archives and History is currently narrowing down options to replace its current flag after lawmakers voted to remove the Confederate battle flag from its current version. The MDAH recently revealed its finalists after accepting over a thousand submissions for possible flag designs. Now at 4.30, since first being released, the state flag submissions have been diverse, some even comical. Yeah, one of them getting a lot of buzz, <laughs> really. Earlier this week, the commission released the flags that made it into the second round. One of the fan favorites announced into the second round did so accidentally. And I'm sorry because it's my favorite. Well, kind of. It took the social media by storm. A possible new state flag shows a mosquito surrounded by stars with words in God we trust written at the bottom. Now listen, a mosquito is something that we all have in common. Would you not agree? I yes, mean, everybody. absolutely. So, uh, we're certainly no strangers to it. And then uh, several comments on social media suggested that we may need the harmless, lighthearted laugh for a flag. So, an elephant stamp of approval for excellence in the category of thinking to the Mississippi Flag Commission. And the second elephant stamp uh, this time goes to seven-year-old Samir Anwar of Dunedin in the South Island of New Zealand because a missing piece of Lego has dropped out of his nose two years after he pushed it up there. Uh, his parents had become alarmed when he told them he'd lost that piece of Lego up his nose and couldn't find it. Uh, they'd taken him to the GP who he couldn't find it or he she couldn't find it either the doctor said well it'll move through their son's digestive tract even if it had even been there in the first place so you know young Samir wasn't showing any signs of pain or distress so everyone forgot about it uh, and they told the guardian he's quite a playful and mischievous character but then last night uh being just the other day uh he um sniffed up some cake crumbs, right? Because the, the, a plate of pink cupcakes had been served. Uh, young Samir leant down to take a big sniff of them because we all like huffing cake. Um, oh. Uh, anyway, um, so he took a sniff. His nose began to hurt. Uh, his mother helped him blow his nose, hoping to clear it. But instead of pink cake crumbs coming out, which, you know, we normally blow out of our nose, out dropped a bit of Lego covered in fungus. Uh, parents said the Lego piece looks a bit gross, but that's how it is. It's true. Um, uh, and Samir was was happy. He, he was joyous. He said, Mum, I found the Lego. You were telling me it wasn't there, but it was there. I mean, yeah. 
I too would be excited in finding Lego up my nose, but as The Guardian reports, it was not the first time Samir had put something up his nose. When he was three, he pushed an imitation pearl up his nostril, but that time his father... Uh, retrieved it. Uh, the Guardian then goes on to provide further background. Lego pieces are commonly lost up children's nostrils, as are beads and small pieces of food like popcorn kernels, peas, blueberries, and grapes. Less commonly stuck up noses are things, this is according to kidspot.com.au, a glob of mince, a large piece of broccoli, a crayon, hello the Simpsons, and a rotting piece of leather. Uh, and they end by reporting that in 2018, a team of doctors swallowed Lego and timed how long it took to pass through their bowels uh, in an attempt to reassure concerned parents. <laughs> yes, as a parent, I too would be reassured if my doctor ate Lego. Elephant stamp approval for those people right there. Let me tell you about what's coming up. Um, I am in the process of trying to kind of regularise this podcast. <laughs> You've heard this before, I know. But I have decided that there will be a spring mini-series, four episodes in September, with guest co-hosts. Already confirmed, John Birmingham, you heard him earlier. Father Carl Sinclair, you, you may know him from Twitter. Uh, he's uh, a young Catholic priest who uh, lurks in the western parts of New South Wales. He is uh, an interesting chap, one of the, uh, uh, the new wave of, shall we say, um, less conservative uh, priests in the Catholic Church. And uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Also, not just blokes, they're just the first two people that happen to have uh, responded today when I emailed them and there's there's other emails going out. So there'll be four episodes in September. I'm assuming the other the other two will have to be women, right, uh, for balance. And I would do that normally anyway. <laughs> I mean, really. Um, so for those of you who are subscribers and are owed trigger words and conversation topics, I will be in touch over the next... What's it? today's the 18th, the next two weeks, uh, to tell you uh, how you can get your trigger words and conversation topics into those episodes. So don't worry, nothing will happen for a week. I'll be lining up people and then I'll tell you all who's on when. Uh, obviously, we'll be talking not just about current events like I do here, but thinking about the future, talking about what these people are doing and so on. Uh, if there's anyone you'd like to hear on this podcast, uh, do feel free uh, to suggest names um, because if, if this works in September, um, I'll do another series later up, right? Uh, but, of course, that will depend uh, upon you, the generous listeners, because you make this podcast possible, right? You know that. You know that. And, and this episode... Uh, it's thanks to Frank Filipponi. Again, he's he's forever generous. He said, um, uh, put put this money towards uh, your background drinking uh, when you're recording. Although, um, I did, 
I didn't have time to uh, go shopping, so I've just grabbed uh, from my shelf uh, one of my favourite Chilean wines, the uh, Casillero de Diablo Carmenere 2018. Uh Casillero de Diablo, I found out since, are probably kind of like the yellow tail of Chile. Hey, it's a good, inexpensive wine. Uh, and uh, Frank, I will get a lovely bottle of gin uh, further down the track. Uh, Jody Miners, thank you to you too. Uh, and you thank me for live tweeting a press conference so that you didn't have to listen to uh, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton. I think this is a fair exchange. Jonathan Ferguson, who took out a cheeky red annual subscription. Thank you, sir. Carl Oscar, who chucked in some money for a weather station for Bungery Cottages. Now, that's the thing. Bungery Cottages is where I am up in the Blue Mountains. Uh, I'm toying with the idea of getting a proper internet weather station for it because it would help uh, both the people staying at the cottages and my own weather geekishness. I'll tell you. Another time about whether that happens. Uh, thank you, Carl Oscar. And Pete Lawler, who gave me some money and once more has called me a cunt. If you'd like to join these people, uh, and as I keep saying, look, we're in the quarantines. You may well have a lot to deal with in your life right now. So deal with that, right? Deal with your friends and family first. But... If you'd like to join these people and contribute to my little uh, lot on my plate right now, uh, go to stilgarian.com slash tip, stilgarian.com slash tip, or really uh, the 9pmedict.com and there's a tip button. You can do that there. Uh, That would be lovely. Uh, Thank you. Do you remember... From last episode, Ms. Catherine Campbell, AOCSC. You may not remember the name, but you may remember that she's the Secretary of the Department of Social Services here in Australia who said this. So I'm sorry, Chair, I don't know what robo-debt means. I suppose for people who aren't in Australia, like everyone in Australia knows what robo-debt means now, but if you're outside Australia... um. Look, this news story from uh, the 3rd of June, uh, it'll give you the details. Taking out the trash on a Friday afternoon. We'll be refunding $721 million. Admitting a very expensive mistake, the federal government will pay back 470,000 Centrelink debts, totalling more than $720 million. The government has for years been illegally taking people's money. Over almost five years, thousands of people like Bethany had been sent so-called robo-debt letters, ordering them to repay money. I've got people saying I've done the wrong thing and I've got a debt that I have to pay. It was a system reliant on computers, averaging someone's income from the tax office and deeming they've been overpaid by Centrelink. We have uh, advice now that the uh, averaged income from ATA data was not sufficient. The government didn't have the lawful authority to do what they were doing. More than 10,000 who say they were wrongly charged to taking the federal government to court. 2,000 who received letters have died. Some have taken their own lives. This government should be ashamed of itself. They should 
not just refund the money, but they now need to make recompense for the hardship and the pain they've caused. At this stage, the class action is going ahead with a trial date set for July 20. And if this settlement is not agreed to, then the government could have more to pay. A white flag might have been waved, but campaigners and those left out of pocket say the war is not over. If they didn't have a class action breathing down their neck, this money still wouldn't be refunded to Australians. Jonathan Kersley, Nine News. As I say, that was back in early June. Uh, since then, the government has slowly been repaying the money that they illegally took away from welfare recipients. Class Act. There is a Senate inquiry into, like, what the hell is going on here. Uh, and on Monday, yesterday, as I'm recording this, I was pleased to see that Ms Catherine Campbell, AOCSC Secretary of the Department of Social Services, uh, has come up with a brand new phrase that I think will come in very handy in your own uh, businesses, in your own lives. I'm going to certainly start using it. Um, and, and I think we really need uh, to hear uh, an extended, well, not that extended exchange uh, in the uh, Senate Community Affairs References Committee inquiry into Centrelink's compliance program. Uh, and the questions here are being asked by a Labor senator for New South Wales, Senator Deborah O'Neill. This is just just sit back and listen. Are you uh, sorry for the absence of legislation to support this particular type of debt raising? Or are you sorry for the harm that was caused by this particular form of income averaging? So the exact words that we used were the department and agency also apologises for any hurt or harm and are focused on applying the lessons learned in the future. Okay. So that's... Is that a fairly formulaic response, Ms Campbell? My question is, are you sorry for the absence of legislation to support that particular type of debt-raising activity, or are you sorry for the harm caused because of the use of income averaging? So, Senator, last time, and I've just repeated it, I said the department and agency also apologise for any hurt or harm and are focused on applying the lessons learned into the future. So, was it unlawful, Ms Campbell? Senator, we have provided evidence that it was legally insufficient to use income averaging to raise debts as the sole proof point. What does legal insufficiency mean in plain English? Well, I think Ms Mussolino just explained that. She can explain it again. Yep. So, Senator, uh, when we uh, raise the debt, when we look at whether an overpayment has occurred, uh, it's, it, it is the case now, and it's always been the case, that it's up to the department, the decision maker, to be satisfied that in all of the circumstances of the individual matter, there is sufficient um, proof points, there's sufficient information to be satisfied that in that particular case a debt has arisen. Uh, and what uh, changed in November 2019 was that uh, in addition to looking at averaging, the department or the agency would be looking for extra information. So the way I'd explain it to the layperson would be, we're going to not just rely on the ATO average data, we're going to ask people um, for payslips, bank statements, whatever other information they can help, they can give us to help make an informed decision on whether a debt has arisen, whether they've been overpaid. That's how so, I'd explain so, that. So that's, that's a lot of words, but basically it was 
illegal. It was not legally and able to happen. The government illegally raised debts against its own citizens. That's is not that a question, <coughs> Senator? Or is that correct? We've just indicated that it was legally insufficient to just rely on average data. Ms. So that was, that was has wrong. gone through the number of issues that will now be used to ensure that the debts are raised with legal sufficiency. I'm sorry, Your Honour. It turns out that my attempt to obtain alcohol from that uh, bottle shop while holding a gun in my hand uh, lacked legal sufficiency. Wow. Look, I think it's fair to say that Ms. Catherine Campbell, AOCSC, does not give the impression of someone who is completely forthcoming with the truth. And I think that some people might well get the impression that she is evasive and more concerned with saving her own skin than serving the citizens of Australia. Uh, meanwhile, Labor, the Labor opposition claims that the government has uh, racked up $34 million in its legal bill, uh, even though you know it's now been found to be uh, <laughs> legally insufficient. Uh, and Labor is, of course, uh, still calling for a royal commission to find out exactly what happened. Uh, but uh, the Senate committee uh, has to report by the 2nd of December. A little while yet. I think there's some more public hearings and uh, I think we are going to hear a bit more from Ms. Catherine Campbell, AOCSC. This is uh, the point uh, which in recent episodes I've been bringing you some of the conspiracy theories uh, that have been uh, inhabiting our world. Uh, we seem to have been going for more than an hour at this stage, so I'll power through this. I will just say I've linked, I won't go into it, but I've linked into uh, in the on the webpage thingy uh, some new research from the University of Otago in New Zealand uh, into the psychology of people who are inclined to believe in conspiracy theories. And they say that while the findings suggest that there's a correlation between feelings of being in control and the likelihood of believing in conspiracies, uh, I assume that means the feelings of not being in control, uh, the authors say this uh, doesn't prove causation and that there's no uh, one-size-fits-all uh theory really uh, so the results they say suggest that conspiracy beliefs are not suitable for con for compensating for threats to control um, look look into it it's interesting uh, also comedian Greg Larson uh, in Melbourne found a note uh, put on his car overnight COVID hoax dear neighbour the COVID-19 virus is a hoax created by Big Pharma the people of Victoria will not be fooled into submission we will rebel in all capitals no more masks and no more lockdown there will be a gathering at the community library on Tuesday which I assume is today we will be maskless and proud uh, also, in 2017, Health Minister Greg Hunt issued, uh, uh, sorry, liked a porno tweet by BBW Cumpumper69. Now, that's true. Uh, the Health Minister's Twitter account did click on the like button on a porn tweet. 
and then lied and said he was hacked. And then uh, uh, something, a phony police report, filed a phony police report and got away scot-free. What the health minister's stupid clicking on a porn link, or maybe it was one of his staffers, so what? And then saying, I mean, that's lame as all fuck. But what's that got to do with the COVID-19 rebellion? I don't know. I must play, however, this clip. It's another one gathered from the depths of conspiracy land by Cam Smith, a.k.a. Sexenheimer. Uh, just listen. It starts one way, um, and you you may think you're going to tell how it ends, but trust me, you don't. In order for the new physical reality reality to become apparent, the old one must crumble. Don't fall into the loops of pain and suffering that are going to become witnessed. Don't fall into the traps of the old mind matrix, which will try to keep you in states of fear. So, we are building the new earth. We are shifting everything for everybody. And when you come home to your power and your love and your sovereignty, you are doing the best thing possible. So choose your frequency, 500 or above, emanate it and know that you are making the difference. Sending you lots of love and I'm with you in this, in this. Just uh, last week I was up in a starship my consciousness was extracted from this body while I was sleeping and my consciousness was taken up into the starship where I was doing energy healing for the children, some of the children who have been saved. And it's tough. It's tough. I will say that word is... Uh uh, this coming weekend, much of the uplands of uh, southeastern Australia, and particularly the Australian Alps, but also maybe as far north as where I am or further, it's going to snow. So there's that. I fucking hate snow. But each episode, I have been trying to throw in a glimmer of hope or two, and and here's a couple of things. Uh, this is a, a lovely story. Uh, a library in uh, Melbourne, uh, the Yarra Plenty Regional Libraries, when they first went into lockdown in March, I mean, they're shutting the doors, right? And all of their remaining unborrowed books, unborrowed books were still on their shelves. Staff were sent home. And one of the hardest things about the lockdown, uh, says... Uh, Yarra Plenty's Executive Manager of Public Participation. Oh, God, I wish I hadn't read that. Anyway, Lisa Dempster, who sounds quite lovely. Uh, people being separated from their community was a problem. Uh, the library, yes, modern libraries are often a hub for people to kind of interact, particularly elderly people. So what this library did, they pulled from their database the phone number of every library member over the age of 70. That was about 8,000 of them. And then they gave him a phone call. Uh, Ms. Dempster said, yeah, we called them to say hi, see how they're doing, see if there was anything they needed help with. Uh, and then they put them in touch with those services. Um, and, and they said, what we found mostly is that people are really up for the chat. 
Love getting that call from the librarian. Some calls go for five minutes. Some go for half an hour or more. So although part of me, you know, I, as you know, a bit sceptical about all manner of things, but I think that's, that's a really lovely initiative. So well done, the Yarra Plenty Library, whatever, wherever the fuck that is. Uh, and also from uh, John B. on the Twitters, uh, John B. 78 and a friend of mine, a lot of uh, discussion in Australia at the moment about aged care and nursing homes probably will indeed because uh, people have been dying in them of the COVID. Uh, but John says... The primary reason nursing homes are horrible is that they're targeted on life prolongment rather than life quality. Uh, so they keep people in the most abject misery possible as long as they aren't dead. He suggests you should get an unlimited drugs buffet the second you go through the door. Look, if you're not, and I, and I kind of agree, if you, why should you? You feel like you're in a prison, in a hospital. I mean, if you've had a good life, enjoy it. And and I imagine uh, some of you listening to this might want to look forward to the year 2055 uh, when you wander into the Tina Arena Memorial Performance Space at uh, the Autumn of Love Nursing Home. Uh, where Jessica Malboy, who by then will be 66 years old, she hands around a bowl full of Eckies before performing covers of Juru Gosh's uh, Infinity and the selected works of Black Box, Snap, and maybe Lisa Stanfield. Bit of public enemy. Who would do that? I wonder. Let me know. In your 90s, time for Guru. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the edict for now. Everything you need is now at the 9pmedict.com, kind of. Go there and you can click out. Uh, the next episode will be probably the first week of uh, September. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.